the movie is about one thing. It's uh, about the classic American fantasy or myth that you can reinvent yourself, that you can change your destiny, that you don't have to be who you are told you are. Every character in the movie is trying to change who they are. Every character is trying to rewrite their story and everybody fails because it's Sopranos. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alan Taylor's new mobster drama, The Many Saints of Newark. A prequel to the award-winning television series The Sopranos, the film follows a young Tony Soprano as he grows up in one of the most tumultuous eras in New Jersey history. As he idolizes his uncle, Dickie Moltisanti, we see how the relationship influences his adolescence and contributes to his transformation into the all-powerful mob boss he will someday become. In addition to The Many Saints of Newark, Mr. Taylor's directorial credits include the feature films Terminator Genesis and Thor The Dark World, and episodes of the television series Deadwood, The Sopranos, and Sex in the City, and the pilot for The Playboy Club. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Dramatic Series for episodes of Game of Thrones and Mad Men, and won the 2007 award in that category for his Mad Men pilot episode, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Taylor spoke with fellow director Greg Matola about filming The Many Saints of Newark. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I'm a huge Sopranos fan. I watched every episode. Apparently, Alan hasn't. He admitted to me. Or, but uh, why don't we start with that? How many episodes did you direct of Sopranos? Uh, I didn't keep track, but I heard it was uh, nine. Um, and it was a funny rhythm because I did one in the first season. And then I got invited back to do a second one and said no because I, I thought I was going to write something. And David Chase doesn't take no very well. So I was not invited back for season two or season three. Um, and then I guess he forgot by season four. And I got invited back and it sort of increased from there on. So by the final season, I was doing a few. In my recollection, the show kind of grew each season in budget and probably shooting schedule, I would guess. Yeah, it certainly grew in budget because they realized it was successful. It grew in the, the shooting time got longer and the style evolved too. Um, it went from something, I think, slightly more idiosyncratic in the first season, um, more wide-angle lenses, slightly more sort of aggressive style, and it, it kind of matured over time. And I think it was sort of David's taste that matured it to, the, to its later style. Um, it was The original look was very much set by Alex Sakharov, who was the DP on the, mm -hmm. uh, the pilot in the first few, and that uh, he came out of a sort of Eastern European style of filmmaking, and, and you can feel that in the first season. Yeah, I kind of remember the wide angle lenses and, and it made things a little more grotesque. Yeah. It was kind of, um, almost yeah, leering kind of quality, but it made it very powerful too. And then, I mean, the thing that seemed to continuous for me in this style was there is a kind of power to the Soprano style that like camera moves are forceful and definite and still wide angle lenses and still very graphic compositions. And that's, we tried to pull that into the movie to a certain extent. Yeah, so just talking about that, it's a show that I felt had always had a lot of restraint. There wasn't a lot of noodling or, or handheld stuff for no particular purpose or show-off-y. All the camera moves always felt motivated by um, an emotional moment or a character's actual movement or something. Yeah, so I mean, we were doing it at a time when you know we were on HBO and 
we were shooting with sort of formal compositions and wide angle lenses and on network at the time, there was a lot of moving cameras and long lenses that were sort of being chopped up a lot and it gave an impression of a lot of dynamism and a lot of energy, but it was really just sort of, you know, faking it. <laughs> yeah. Um, just trying to hide like, stuff. <laughs> yeah. You have an action scene and you make the camera go back and forth on a dolly with a long lens. It, you know, it looks like it, um, there's more going on. And there was a real sort of enforced simplicity in the way we shot Sopranos. Yeah, I, I always admired how kind of classical it was. Um, why don't we just jump right into this? So what happened to Tony in the final episode, the very last <laughs> moment? It's funny. I actually got in trouble for this. I didn't think I was going to. Um, <laughs> I saw it in an interview, so I thought I'd... Okay, yeah, you can get me in trouble I, again. I'm, uh, has anybody seen the final episode of Sopranos, the TV show? Not not big Sopranos fans. Interesting. Okay, two, three. Uh, the show notoriously ends with a cut to black without explaining what um, has happened in the in the scene. David Chase is adamant that it he doesn't want to say what happened. And um, the way he describes it is that every possibility in Tony's life is in that room. And then you turn the TV off. But I'm convinced that Tony got shot in the back of the head. And I have a lot of reasons for thinking that. And that's how I directed this movie was sort of with that idea in mind. There, there are scenes in the movie that I find very emotional because of that. If, the younger Tony played by William Ludwig has one, one of my favorite scenes when, and Dickie's leaving the room and he turns and says, I saw a guy get shot in the back of the head and I don't want that to happen to me. And it's the perfect opportunity for the perfect parenting moment. And instead Dickie just says, yeah, whatever. And leaves. <laughs> and you realize that, you know, he's never going to be the parent that Tony really needs, but Tony is somehow in my mind anyway, uh, sensing what's going to come sort of. That is, that's a horrifying thought to not, I don't even know that your life has just been ended. Um, well, the, the reason I, I interpret it that way is because there's only one line of dialogue in the entire Sopranos series that was said as a line of dialogue and then repeated as voiceover. And that's when a character named Bacala said, I guess when it's, it's your time, you don't hear the bullet or something. Um, and there, there's just so many sort of little indicators that I think that's the way to read that final cut to black. Um, something else that you said in interviews which I'm stealing from right now, uh, was that Sopranos, what was unique about the show was that it was contemporary and it was set in a very recognizable suburb. It wasn't, it wasn't um, the gritty world of Goodfellas necessarily and it wasn't the romanticized uh, past of Godfather movies. And that unique quality is part of what let it catch on. And in doing this movie, you were being stripped of those two qualities. Yeah, right. right. I, I mean... I try and find the thing that's going to scare the, me the most whenever I do anything, it seems. And so on this one, I was thinking, okay, we're taking a TV show that was famous because it took the classic American gangster movie, put it on the small screen and made it contemporary. And we're going period and putting it on the big screen. So we've just yanked the carpet out of the sort of the big invention that was Sopranos. So how on earth do you carry Sopranos across that onto the, into the big screen? It just meant spending a lot of time thinking about the way the show felt and how it was shot and what the tones were and how the humor was used and trying to make sure that that stuff all came across into the movie because we'd lost two of the things that sort of defined the Sopranos. Well, I definitely think the humor was there. And, and I mean, one of the things I loved about David Chase's writing and, and the tone of the show and the directors who worked on it was that no one was ever just one thing. Human beings are many different things at once. And as they would sort of change between those facets, uh, there's a lot of comedy. Um, and there's a lot of surprises. For instance, Ray Liotta's the brother character that you don't see until the father is murdered, um, has had a lot of time in prison 
to develop, to think. And he has, and he has a point of view on things that is not the typical kind of conversation you have with the convict um, when you go to visit. And I, I love those scenes. And I love the difference between how Ray Liotta played both characters. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, whenever you do an American gangster thing, Scorsese is looming, you know, on the, around you all the time. And I thought, thought it was very important to try and feature the things in Sopranos that are specific only to Sopranos and you don't find in other gangster lore. So then when we brought Ray Liotta in, it was, it was an issue. It was, you know, are we going to bring in this sort of icon of the Scorsese world and, and be able to put him in our movie and not be sort of sucked into Scorsese? And, and what saved it for me was that very weird casting choice. We had lunch with Ray and came away from it. And I'd had this idea for a while of casting the both brothers with the same actor and knowing that it was going to kick people out of the movie for a second, but then they would find their way back in again. And uh, using casting Ray that way felt like it allowed us to enjoy everything he brings, um, but still put a kind of slightly surreal soprano stamp on on him. And yeah, his second character is sort of the the only character in the movie that that isn't torn and troubled and driven by, you know, wanting things that, that they can't have and stuff. He's, he's the only one that sort of achieves some kind of peace. Yeah. And I think, I think what was particularly effective is that one character is gone from the story and this other character comes in and there, there's, there's a, a yin and yang of those brothers that. Is well, and I, and ideally also it's like, you know, he, he murders his father and in, I, I like to think that I'm not sure the second Ray Liotta exists, that, <laughs> right. that, uh, that he's maybe a kind of fabrication of the ideal father he sort of needed, kind of, that he's provided for himself and he goes and has these sessions with. And one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he talks about coaching the beat baseball team and the way that scene is shot and the way he sort of comes out of it and Ray's not there anymore. The, what I was trying to suggest was, you know, well, that probably didn't happen and maybe Ray didn't, <laughs> didn't happen either because, there's a, again, there's something in Sopranos that, you go into dreams and you go into altered consciousness in the show and you're not quite sure when you got there and you don't necessarily realize until you come out of it that you might have gone somewhere strange. Um, I mean, the show notoriously spent an entire season in a kind of coma. Um, yeah, no, that's, it is one of the great things about the show is that it, it delves into the, the sort of psychology of the characters. Um, and you don't know, you know, people live in their fantasy world a lot and, and these people, in these lives, would well, yeah, every character is deluded, and, and everybody is sort of chasing something that's not entirely true, and lying all the time to their, the people they're closest to, just like real life. <laughs> and so, so let's talk about the exciting challenge because you don't like to make it easy for yourself of revisiting um, Sopranos when David Chase, when you met with him on this, and he actually asked you to do it. What was your first thought? Did you think I can't mess with this world? Is too many people who will have too many opinions about well, it. It's, it's funny. Um, I guess by the time I met with him, I'd been so successfully beaten up by the, <laughs> by the world that I was, it felt like coming home to come to this. It, it, I mean, it was intimidating, but at the same time it was like, Oh my, you know, thank God I'm going back to a world that I think I understand. I mean, I don't want this to turn into my usual uh, therapy confessional, but I, I had done two blockbusters that did not make me happy. I'd done a, a Thor movie and a, a Terminator movie and with the best intentions possible. Um, but came out having forgotten why I wanted to make movies in the first place and, and stuff. And um, so this was sort of the long road back to, to a chance to do this project, which was sort of a, a chance to take what I'd done in television that I'd been proud of and do it on the big screen and a chance to go back to, I mean, David Chase is not a simple, easy collaborator, but he's, he's, I really respect him. And it was a 
territory that I understood and felt like I had a handle on. So that, in a way, yes, it was intimidating, but it also felt like coming home. Yeah, no, I I, I can relate, having had my own not totally satisfying <laughs> experiences out in the world. Um, and coming back to make a movie that, yeah, you understand the characters. And, and you know, there are certain people you can't, as you know, you can't please if you touch something that has a existing pop culture um, presence. So, fuck them. Anyway. <laughs> so. Yeah, but that doesn't work either. Um, no, it's funny. I, I've experienced raging fan love and raging fan hate, and uh, they, they are very powerful. And I was on Game of Thrones where we were just like treated like we were geniuses all the time um, and until season eight, but I wasn't there for season eight, so I got to avoid that. But uh, I've experienced uh, the opposite. But I, but I do think it's important to sort of, I mean, I guess the way I handled this was not to really think about the fans, but to think of myself as a fan kind of um, to, I loved the show and for very specific reasons and to try and bring those into the movie. I was hoping that that would work for the fans clearly from some response it's worked for some fans and not other fans but yeah no i think it, i think it did work for a lot of people and um i guess i would ask um well, let's sort of jump into the early process when the script that you first saw was it very similar to what you shot were there many changes it's funny david has a really interesting way of writing i think he at least from the outside he seems to do it sort of intuitively uh and it, the script did change a lot from what I first read to what was on the screen. We had a different beginning, a different ending. Um, I never liked the beginning that was in the original version, so that was good. I loved the ending that was in the original <laughs> version, so that was painful. Um, and he finds his way intuitively, I think. Um, and then we had this weird process because we shut down for COVID, and he, that gave David more time to sort of think about things. And he, he invented the beginning in the cemetery when we're sort of hearing the voices. Um, was probably the last thing that got invented. Um, I was really grateful for it because it sort of pulled the movie together um, or took a step towards pulling the movie together. Uh, but yeah, it did evolve and, and, you know, it was nice to have some, a chance to have input because on the show, David and the writers were in a kind of ivory tower and the directors were on the set, you know, making the thing. We, there wasn't a lot of exchange back and forth, but this was a different relationship where we actually got to collaborate more on the script. And uh, when it came to casting, how long of a process was that? I, I was, it was really luxurious because there's so much respect for the show that it was a rare experience. Um, and any directors here know that how rare this is to go to your first choice and get yeses all the time. Cause, um, we went to Vera for Livia and she said yes. And Corey for junior and Ray was probably the only offer we made for, um, for that role. Um, and it's because they admire the show. And so we were getting actors we wanted to come in. The casting Michael was a, interesting process michael gandolfini who plays his father's character and it was very challenging to cast dicky Moltisanti because he's at the center of the thing and has to sort of carry the whole all the story threads have to work with him yeah um, so those two were hard obviously uh it's a very it must have very emotional thing michael's playing his father's character um was that something present on set or was it just we all understand it and know it and now we can do the work. I don't know if anybody's ever met Michael Gandolfini. Um, he is the sweetest, most gentle, sort of sensitive, generous, warm-hearted person. He couldn't be more different than the character we all think of as Tony. Uh, and he sort of just brought that energy onto the movie and people gathered around him. And I think there was a real conscious or maybe unconscious 
response, the rest of the, the cast and the crew kind of circle around him, uh, you know, like a family. And I think it's because they knew what he was having to go through to, to do this. You know, he had lost his father. He had found his father when his father passed away. Um, he had never seen The Sopranos. He had to watch the entire show when he did this. He had to immerse himself in his father's uh, performance and mannerisms. And so we, we knew we were asking a huge amount from him. But early on, it became clear to me he wanted to do it. And um, so that made it easier for me to want him to do it because I, I I think it wound up being a good thing for him and, and for the movie too. Yeah, I think he's great. And I think he does have a really lovely quality that once you learn that he, you know, the scene, I really like the scene with um, the guidance counselor and hearing that he's super bright, that he right. has a very high IQ, which we know from Tony is an incredibly smart guy. Um, but all of these various influences made him shaped who he was and seeing him before some of those influences have completely cor- corrupted him. is heartbreaking. Um, and, but he was such a, I found him to be a great presence, really lovable. And also, you know, that sort of twinkle in Gandolfini's eye, the thing that made you forgive him as a viewer for doing terrible, terrible, terrible things. Interesting, like alchemy of why we forgave, uh, Jim Gandolfini in that role. And at the time, I know the writers were conscious of thinking, well, if he's the smartest person in the room and if he's good at his job, then you'll follow him. But it was hugely dependent on Gandolfini. And like you say, the intelligence in his eyes and the glint in his eye and some kind of sense of vulnerable warmth in this big guy that I think made you sort of stick with him. And also, it's, you know, he's like all Sopranos leading men. He's torn down the middle and he's a monster and he's also hates himself for being a monster and is trying to do something about it and trying to understand it. And unlike the, the people around him um, who are less uh, inquisitive about that. Um, and so I think that makes you sort of root for him. You know, like, is Dickie going to do enough good deeds to to make up for the, the sort of the violence that he inherited from his father is, um, you know, I, I think there's a, that's the, it's that split that makes us root for us or at least pay attention to Sopranos characters. With, uh, where did you um, cast Michaela de Rossi? Michael Dorsey, she plays um, Giuseppina. I think, isn't she great? I don't think anybody. <laughs> She's fantastic. <laughs> she, um, we, we had one casting, uh, Beatrice Kruger, who I'd worked with on Rome uh, for HBO, is based in Rome. And so we had a casting process going on in Rome. And um, we saw many, many people. And it was wonderful because I, I saw her and thought, oh, she's my favorite and was very good glad that David had seen the same hundred people and he had the same choice um, too. So we didn't have a conflict. It was sort of unanimous from the beginning and she came over and could barely speak English when she arrived um, and just was wonderful. Nailed it. I mean, she's got this, I think, I think she should become some kind of star hopefully in the, in the future. Yeah, no, she's, she's great. And it was pretty upsetting to see how her demise goes. You're a monster. No, I'm kidding. I didn't, I didn't write it. <laughs> I didn't do it. Um, and Alessandro, I've always been a fan of Alessandro Nivola. Uh, he's a very charismatic actor. Um, as far as I know, he's kind of not dipped into mafia characters before. I, don't, I can't think of any, at least. No, I don't think he's done mafia. He's done sort of you know corrupt characters and, and sleazy yeah. characters and stuff, but he's, he hasn't done mafia, and which is funny because he's got Italian heritage and he's you know he, I know he loves those movies. But he also hasn't really been, he hasn't carried a movie like this before. He's never, I don't think he's really been cast in the lead in a movie like this before. Um, so it was, a, it was a big deal for him, I think, to, to get this. How would you, how do you like to work with actors? How 
you know, do you, this is the nuts and bolts of it. Do you like to come to set and rehearse the scene and then send everyone off to makeup and start to light? What's your favorite way to work? I'm I'm always very conscious of the crew standing around waiting when you're rehearsing. Um, So I like to release, rehearse key relationships up before we start shooting. And it doesn't even have to necessarily be rehearsing, just like reading the scenes through together with the key relationships. So in this case, you know, Tony with Dickie, Dickie with Giuseppina, Dickie with Harold. And then, yeah, you come to set and and rehearse and get the blocking worked out and try not to, you know, irritate the crew too much while you're going through that. And then the directing process is so different depending on who you're working with. For example, I mean, it really was striking on, on this movie. Alessandro has a very private process. He, he is doing it all from inside. He will frequently stop the scene partway through and start at the beginning again, or he'll go through halfway through a line and stop and pick it up again. And he's constantly sort of trying to get the voice right and get it to be a performance right and the results are wonderful but sometimes it throws the other actors in the scene because they're not used to working that way and Giuseppina Michaela is the opposite she's completely focused on the person she's working with and everything she does is in reaction to what the other person is doing so that their two styles of acting were very potentially incompatible at the beginning and they sort of found a way to get used to each other um, and I think some of their scenes together are my favorite like when they're fighting in the be- in the bedroom and stuff but uh, then you just have to sort of learn what everybody's method is and try and speak to them in ways that are useful for them. Do you like to, uh, I mean, I feel like, you know, you did, you talk about the style, the soprano style. Do you like to have multiple cameras when possible? I think that's, I'm not sure if it's how, how normal it is, but it's become certainly normal for me. And maybe it's coming out of TV or something that, uh, having two cameras all the time, um, and then three cameras when you can, and it, you know, speeds things up and it's non-intrusive for the most part. Yeah. I think there's a few scenes in there that are sort of oneers where we use one camera, but mostly it's uh, two cameras going all the time. Because it does seem, you know, you're quite willing to to live in a take in a shot for a while. It's not an overly cutty film in any way, which yeah, I it's, it goes back to the thing we were saying before. You know, you know, not really using long lenses, not whipping the camera around, not doing moves, um, and not cutting uh, unless you, there was a you know a reason to. And some of my favorite moments are like lingering on Alessandro's performance where. You know, in the rhythm of television, you would be cutting, or in the rhythm rhythm of more of an action movie, you'd be cutting, but just letting it hang out. Um, there was always a second camera going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in case. Do you um, have you worked with uh, Kramer Morgenthau before? Uh, Kramer Morgenthau, yeah, shot this, and yeah, he's. I think he's amazing. I discovered him on Boardwalk Empire, and then did a pilot with him, and then did a couple of the um, unfortunate blockbusters that I referred to. And we did Game of Thrones together. Um, so, yeah, I, I sort of use him whenever I can. Uh, but now he's become popular and it's harder to get to him, unfortunately. I know. He, this uh, year he had Respect he shot and he shot this. And he's shooting Creed number two and he's doing a musical right now. He's, he's, I've lost him to the, to the industry. Yeah, he's, he is great. Do you, do you like to go so far storyboarding? If it's something like this, as opposed to a big action thing, it's funny. I, I storyboarding I hardly did in, in my early days, and then when I did the big action movies, we storyboarded like crazy, and it was a very weird process because uh, in Marvel, there's no script frequently, and the storyboard artists are designing action scenes before the script exists, and the storyboard artists actually wind up writing the script in a way because you're sort of they're creating story before the script gets there, and that process i met somebody on thor who was a storyboard artist and then we became romantically involved and she's been my storyboard artist on all these other things um and she did the boards for um for this and it was funny watching her struggle with it because like the shootout that we have where harold's trying to kill um 
Dickie, her first impulse was to sort of jack up the violence and make it exciting and make it fun and make it like sort of boffo to make it sort of superhero violence. And it, had, it took a while for her to realize, oh, no, this is kind of feel-bad violence. You have, to, <laughs> you have to make it feel realistic and sort of bring it down and, and not overplay it. And so, I mean, on a movie like this, we just storyboard things that are stunt-heavy and action-heavy um, and nothing else. Yeah, because because of the way you shot that scene and conceived of it and storyboarded it, it did feel real to me, which made it quite a bit scarier than if it was just uh, random stunt people falling over. <laughs> well, or, or, or shots that were designed to be, you know, like where you really sort of cut for the angle that's most dynamic. It, it was, I just tried to keep in people's point of view. So we're either in Harold's point of view or we're in Dickie's point of view. And I'm not sh- sure how effective it is, but I know that my teenage daughter saw the movie and the violence bugged her more than most violence, she said. And I think it's because it's portrayed in a way where it's not feel good. It's uh, bad things happen and, and and it's not a kind of a, you know, kick-ass moment. Yeah, you don't high-five after. You don't <laughs> high-five after, no. Um, but we do have one spot where Dickie walks away from the explosion. So there is the... Um, there, there is that, the, there yeah. Is the, yeah. That classic. Was it uh, your decision or early decision, joint decision to shoot in 2-3-5 aspect ratio? It was, uh, it was me and Kramer, I think. We, just, we wanted it to feel like a you know silver screen movie. Yeah, no, it's... it's it, again, that was one of the things that sort of you know, took it away from The Sopranos we knew because uh, it wasn't TV format anymore. Um, did you... I read something where you're talking about the, you know, sort of research that goes in the kind of work that went into the verisimilitude of the Newark riots. Yeah, we, we, the riots were always a, a part of the movie and... Um, they're a very important part of the movie. I think that it partly it's the, it's the period, it's the time, it's the violence. It's also one of the things that makes it, I think, resonate with our time today. You know, we shot this, we started shooting in 2019 and George Floyd then happened after we paused for COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement rose up. So it's what makes it resonant. Um, the thing that I want to make clear too is that it's thematically really important to the movie. Uh, and I think some Sopranos fans are wondering why we're going off into this world and featuring the, the riots of the time. And I, uh, to me, it, it's critical in understanding that time. And the movie is about one thing. It's uh, about the classic American fantasy or myth that you can reinvent yourself, that you can change your destiny, that you don't have to be who you are told you are. And we come into the movie knowing that Tony turned out a certain way. And so the question is there is, you know, was he locked into that? Is that his destiny? Every character in the movie is trying to change who they are. Every character is trying to rewrite their story and everybody fails because it's Sopranos. <laughs> but uh, one character succeeds, and that's Harold. And it's because he's lives through the experience of the riots in '67. He's radicalized, and he determines not to accept the story he's been given. And he changes his story. He's the only character that does it. And it's um, I've seen a few reviews where they say, you know, what's with all the riot stuff? And I uh, don't get a chance to smack them back in person. So I'll just well, I get to vent tonight. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I thought it was, I, I, I thought it was, it was poignant for those reasons. And there's that kind of immigrant thing that you, you yeah, come and you beat up on the next person who moves into your neighborhood, just like you were beat up by when you moved into the neighborhood. Right, the difference here is that African-Americans have been in the country for a long time. They're not the immigrants. They're the owners of the country. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, with all the sort of attitude that the mafia guys have, they don't appreciate who they're going up against. No, one of my favorite moments, um, it's tiny was, uh, 
when Dickie realizes that Harold's doing this and that Harold, it's Harold's idea and Dickie just n- never even saw that coming. <laughs> he just, yeah. It never occurred to him as a possibility that, that, uh, that he would uh, try and take this on. And yet, you know, and it didn't, didn't always end this way. We end with Harold, you know, uh, yeah. was a, a, a choice made very, very late in the process. Um, were you shooting mostly on locations? Were there sets? A lot on location. Uh, on the show, we were always shooting in New Jersey because it was very important to make it feel like New Jersey. On this, we had to go where the period architecture was. So that was, there was a lot in the Bronx and in Brooklyn and in Queens, and but also in New Jersey. We Newark, we shot for Newark. The riots were shot in Newark, but two blocks from where they happened. Um, so lots and lots of, of uh, locations, interior and exterior. We only built you know, the interior of some of our houses and uh, uh, Satriali's, the, <laughs> the pork store. Um, everything else was the location. The, uh, I, I read, to go back to the riots for a second, uh, that you said you'd researched some photographs from the actual events and tried to yeah, that, that's recreate a, the scale and feeling of them to, to be as accurate as possible and not to sensationalize it. Well, I, I love doing historical things, and part of the fun is trying to make it have that weirdness that you get when you get accurate about it. Um, but the riots in particular, you know, I, we had a bunch of white middle-aged guys trying to make <laughs> this movie. And uh, if we were going to venture into doing the riots, we had to do our homework and make sure we were doing it as accurately as possible. So there was a lot of research. You don't really see a single image in the riots that wasn't grounded in some visual research. The kid that got shot is wearing the same clothes that the kid got who was shot and was on the cover of Life magazine. Um, uh, that young boy survived but um uh but every, literally everything is, is grounded in, in research and when we were shooting we were like i said two blocks from the location where it happened and some people were coming out from the neighborhood who were old enough to have been there like as kids and and some had tears in their eyes saying you know it looked exactly like what they remembered from the, the time so that was encouraging do you have uh scenes in particular you talked about the the baseball team scene and the weirdness of that which which I really enjoyed. Um, and are there other particular things that you have real affection for or, or, or favorite things for you that you got to do that were new or just so close to what you were hoping to <laughs> capture? Or It's funny. I mean, the beat baseball meant a lot to me because it was that one of the few surreal moments we have, dream moments. And we got to that location to shoot and the fog rolled in and we were able to shoot in fog and then the fog rolled out again <laughs> just as soon as we finished. And it's some of the relationship things like the, the fight in the bedroom between Giuseppina and Dickie where it's one shot and they just, it just feels like such a familiar fight dynamic um, that seems so truthful. Um, I love, there's, there's sort of visual games going on. I'm not sure anybody noticed, but there are several halos in the movie um, uh, as a kind of gesture to the saints. There's um, almost every character gets a halo at a certain point. Um, Harold has one that's quite dramatic when he's standing up to Paulie's character at the club and he's got this sort of big... Um, bright white circle behind his head. Um, so there's some visual games going on that are fun, but that's may pass unnoticed. I don't know. I, I also felt that it was restrained in not going overboard with sort of Easter eggs about this, you know, the characters that were there were the characters that should be there. It wasn't, it wasn't leaning heavily into um, fan service as they say. Yeah. I just, I didn't feel like we were, I mean, there's, uh, Junior does say he doesn't have the makings of a varsity athlete, which for some reason has become like the <laughs> the favorite line of people who love the TV show. Uh, and in fact, we saw it with the premier audience. It was jammed. There were a lot of Sopranos fans and you could 
tell that that line was coming, I guess. And people just started to clap and laugh so loudly <laughs> that you couldn't hear the line. So this, there were a couple of Easter eggs like that. But some of the Easter eggs were more emotional and more dramatic, like that, like you know, the fact that Tony is saying, I don't want to get shot in the back of the head or Christopher crying um, um, when Tony sees him. Uh, not to spoil the show for everybody, but I directed the episode where Tony murders Christopher later in life um, and to see them meet for the first time and have the baby cry. And, and have, you know, again, I love that thing about Sopranos where the old lady says, you know, some babies come over from the other side and they know things. And then she's saying they come over from death into life and they know things. I'd like to think, you know, they come over from HBO into the movies <laughs> you know <things. laughs> and um, they know things. Yeah. But, uh, that the idea that there's the Sopranos mind really does believe this superstitious stuff. Um, it's part of the, it's part of the worldview to believe in that stuff. I had read in some of the articles. Well, it, it's, it's a two part question. One is David Chase said he might think about doing more Sopranos world movies. And what do you think of how in the bigger world of movies on streaming, um, is this, is this our future if we want to keep making features that so don't involve people in tights? It's a two part question. And the second one goes on for half an hour. Um, yeah, so you can only you can <laughs> stick with the first one. Uh, yeah, it's true. I, I, I thought we were doing just one off with this movie, but then David started to say things that made it sound like he was thinking of sequels and, um, more and more concretely. So I, I think he's maybe thinking that there could be either a movie or a TV future growing out of this movie for HBO or something. Um, uh, I was surprised. I thought he'd be the last person to, to want to yeah. do that, but it's, it does sound like that might be being developed somewhere. And you and I were talking about this before. It's, it's a weird time for everybody, for directors, for, um, I mean, we just heard the strike got resolved. I don't know if news got to you guys. The strike is not going to happen tomorrow. Um, and one of the big battles was trying to get the streamers to do the right thing and to pay people the way they should be paid and to, and stop pretending like there's some quirky, uh, internet <laughs> and, and acknowledge the fact that they're, you know, the dinosaurs, they're, I mean, they're, they're the, the kings of the industry now. So, um, n navigating the a relationship with the streamers is going to be the challenge for all of us. We were talking earlier about whether the streamers were going to make it possible for little independent movies to exist again. I'm not sure that's going to happen, but that certainly was one of the hopes because it's very frustrating. I mean, the only reason, and I've had many directors say how jealous they are that, you know, I got to do this because it's, it's, this is a $50 million budget to do a movie that's basically about relationship psychology and uncomfortable things. And, um, those used to be very common, but it's almost impossible to do those these days. Things have to blow up. Things have to have a IP that can, you can recycle. Um, so it's, it's very hard to, to get a chance to make movies like this. Um, or even, you know, just, theme driven or adult driven or something, um, material and streamers we keep hoping will be the, the way to do that. But, uh, I'm not sure. Um, well on that note, I just want to say, Alan, uh, I think the film's great and you did a great job as always. And, uh, I hope, I hope you're going to make more movies <laughs> me too. But well, I think directors get to go back and forth now between TV and movies in a way that we couldn't before. So I hope, I hope you and I both and everybody who's a director in this room gets to go back and forth. Uh, and I can't wait to see your next uh, movie. Well, thanks. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 